This time loop thing. How did you get out of it? Oh, I simply boosted the circuits and broke free. You came back of your own accord? Well, I... Doctor? No. No, I'm afraid not. Now, obviously, the Time Lords have programmed the TARDIS always to return to Earth. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic yo-yo. to Galactic Yoga, the podcast where Doctor Who fans shed out unpopular opinions with the world, and I have to deal with them. I'm your host, Molly Marsh. I'm coming to you once again from my house. It's been a trying week of playing the, uh, well, a trying couple of weeks of playing the Doctor Who 13 game on the DoctorWho.tv website. I'm sure lots of you have been doing the same thing. I've been playing it maybe three, maybe four hours um, every day, probably in total. It's, it's becoming a bit of a problem. So if anyone knows any coping strategies for a 13 uh, addiction, uh, please please do let me know. And I'm not joking. Um, I just, I, I go to sleep at night and I just, in my nightmares, I just see loads and loads of square images of William Hartnell, Patrick Troughton, and sometimes of John Pertwee. Um, the furthest I've got, if anyone's interested, is David Tennant. Uh, I've got to David Tennant about, Tennant about three times, I think. Um haven't seen Matt Smith yet, though. Um, <laughs> I saw somebody on Twitter who got to a Peter Capaldi, but I don't think anybody's yet reached um, Jodie Whittaker. Uh, I'm sure that day will come. Anyway, this week on the podcast, I chatted with Darren Mooney, um, a writer, blogger, critic, um, who I come across um, on Twitter during Series 12, and I, I figured out I really wanted to speak to him because uh, I enjoyed his articles about the Series 12 episodes. Um, Darren and I spoke about a whole range um, of, of topics, but um, his main um, unpopular p- opinion um, focused on the, the Peter Davison era, and um, he was a defender of Peter Davison's Doctor, who I think is a Doctor who is sometimes forgotten by fans. I don't know whether that's fair or unfair, but as you as you all know, I'm kind of uh, I've kind of let it become a, a free for all in terms of what constitutes an unpopular opinion these days. Um, but yeah, Darren and I got into all sorts of topics. He was a really chatty guy, um, so we ended up talking about pretty much um, everything. Uh, so yeah, I hope you enjoy it. I don't think there are any more points of admin this week. I've already recorded uh, an episode for two weeks' time, so I'm I've got one in the bag. So um, yeah, so you can look forward to that. But anyway, without further ado, in the meantime. Here is my conversation with Darren Mooney. So I'm here with um, Darren Mooney, uh, writer, critic. How would you describe yourself, Darren? Jack of all trades, uh, master of absolutely none would probably be the best description of myself. Yeah, I I don't know. Um, Writer, podcaster, uh, general opinion haver, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I first became aware of you through some of the articles you were writing um, earlier this year uh, about uh, some of the series 12 um, episodes and 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 uh, yeah themes of, of, of series 12 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I basically run a blog, um, the movie blog. It's my own personal blog. It's where I write about things that kind of interest me very, very particularly and kind of originated uh, when I kind of started out. I graduated college in 2008. Um, I had studied law. As you might imagine, 2008 was not a great time to be entering the jobs market for <laughs> sure. somebody with a qualification like that. Yeah, I so imagine. I ended up working uh, in IT. And again, you know, I mean, IT is great. If my employers are listening, you guys are fantastic. I absolutely adore you. But more seriously, even if they're not, they're, they've been very generous and very kind. It's a very fulfilling job, to be absolutely clear. Mm. But at the same time, not necessarily fulfilling in the way that I had hoped that a career or a vocation kind of would be for me. Sure. And what came from that was around about 2009. My partner at the time um, was getting a little bit tired of me having constant pop culture opinions, you know, having kind of constant stream of consciousness, needing to share <laughs> my insights and opinions about absolutely every little thing that crossed my mind, which is, again, understandable. Everybody needs a bike shed in a relationship, so to mm. speak. So my partner suggested that maybe I could, like, get a blog because those are big at the time, right? <laughs> um, so I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll get a blog and I'll, I'll kind of write and I'll, it'll be my little corner of the internet where I can talk about whatever takes my fancy. And again, absolute nonsense. Um, so, you know, things about like the weirdness of kind of Kelvert in the context of Titanic, for example, merits uh -huh. 2000 words of discussion. Um, you know, so Kate Winslet's second husband who apparently never knew that Jack Dawson existed, which is always like a weird little thread of Titanic that nobody ever talks about. But I find absolutely fascinating to imagine and uh, kind of to, to pick out and kind of to explore. And kind of little things like that, kind of like branching off and having these discussions. Again, what I, what I do is I kind of deal into kind of nerd culture because I generally I've never kind of seen Titanic. It's one of my I've one of my things. I've, yeah, I've just never got around to. I mean, it, it is a commitment in terms of time. Absolutely. Um, like I, I used to have a thing when I was a teenager where I'd say I'd, I've never seen Titanic and I'd never I've never eaten a cream egg. And everybody be, would be so shocked by those two things. And then in about 2013, I ate a cream egg and um, <laughs> I still didn't watch Titanic. Uh, yeah, and I did it so nonchalantly as well. Like someone was like, "Do you want a, a cream egg?" And I just bit into it, and I was like, "Oh my god!" Like, I've lost my cream egg virginity, and it was. Was yeah, it things, worth it? Things were never the same again. I don't think it was. You know, they they okay. just taste of sugar, don't they? I've had precisely three cream eggs in my lifetime, which somehow is worse than having none. Um, but yes, no, I, I can kind of I can see that. And again, I wouldn't wholeheartedly recommend Titanic unless you've been drawn to it. Like if you wanted to watch Titanic, you probably would have by now. Mm. So it's not a full throated endorsement. Yeah. I think it's a, an interesting film in many respects. I think it's kind of insightful in terms of Cameron as a filmmaker. And I think that, you know, it maybe doesn't merit the backlash that it's had in terms of pop culture. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's fascinating. But yet little things like that that kind of would catch my interest. Sure. I kind of write about those. And naturally, I'd be drawn towards nerd culture. So I'd write about things like, for example, uh, you know, the James Bond movies. Um, mm -hmm. I'd write about Star Trek. I'd write about the, the X-Files. And I got very, very lucky in that people began to notice some people, which is very, very generous and very, very kind. So, you know, I had a number of patrons. Now, you know, admittedly, saying this in 2020 doesn't sound half as cool as it did when it happened in 2012. Mm. But like people like Robert Davey would notice that I'd written a piece on, say, License to Kill and be like, hey, would you like to interview me? And, you know, obviously this was before things went completely insane in the States. And I was like, yeah, let's actually have a conversation about your work in, in License to Kill. And it was kind of, it was thrilling that people would want to read me. Or mm. uh, when I wrote about the X-Files, Kumail Nanjiani kind of noticed my work there and was very, very, very vocal proponent and kind of champion of it and kind of would bring it up on his podcast. And that led, one thing led to another. And kind of, as a result, I ended up, writing a book about the X-Files, um, which is, is incredible because I never would have envisaged myself actually writing a kind of a critical history of something like the X-Files. And that led to, you know, another thing led to me writing a book about Nolan. And, and then that kind of, you know, while working on the blog, other people notice and they end up managing to parlay it into 
again, I, I still I still feel hesitant to describe myself as a critic because the you know the job situation security in the field is not necessarily uh, you know it's about as good as being a law graduate in two thousand and eight in terms of like being able to count on it as a kind of a steady income or as something that you will be able to say that you're doing on a podcast and still be doing by the time the podcast comes out. Sure. Uh, but I've been I've been very very lucky. I've been able to you know host a couple of podcasts. I, I've kind of been seen as a critic. I do a weekly slot on Irish radio where I talk about the new releases and uh, I, I do a couple of columns at the escapist magazine online uh, af- which mm. as part of their attempts to rebrand after certain unpleasantness that i'm not entirely sure i can discuss for legal reasons but there was very much an attempt to clean up the reputation and and i kind of was very flattered that i was one of the people who was brought in as, as somebody who was seen as somebody who could do that mm-hmm. um so yeah i've been, been very very lucky and part of part of that is also writing about doctor who um obviously which is with the context of the podcast yeah here, i was where... gonna say like when did when did doctor who become a part of that repertoire i mean i first started watching doctor who i think around about 2006 the second year of the revival series so i missed chris Eccleston the first time around and then david tennant was on and people were talking about david tennant and people like david tennant and my partner particularly was drawn towards david tennant at the time so i kind of watched the the davies era and kind of i'd, I'd watched that I began reviewing it, I think, properly around the time of the end of the Davies era sort of specials, you know, the sort of the four tenant specials or five tenant specials that kind of led into the Moffat era. Yeah. And then I kind of start doing weekly reviews of it uh, when it was airing uh, during the Moffat era. And again, I was very, very lucky in that people noticed those or paid attention to those. And kind mm. of like when the show was on, I kind of write about that. And it's actually quite nice uh, because one of the things about blogging and writing is that when you try and do a big project so i've written about say every episode of the x-files ever produced i've written about virtually every episode of star trek ever produced i still haven't finished the next generation but i've written about you know 700 reviews of star trek episodes which is quite daunting and exhausting thing about doctor who which was quite nice was that it came out in nice well first of all it originally came out in 13 episode packages and that was nice because it was only 13 weeks commitment yeah. So how was it then writing when you first started writing those reviews of, of Doctor Who back in the, the back end of the Davies era and the start of the Moffat era? Um, it was it was interesting in large part because it seemed like people liked to read them, uh, which was kind of dazzling to me because they're always very esoterical. They're always very sort of like me focused, very much my perspective on a thing, my argument on a thing. It was very much kind of like more about more like a diary than a review, if that makes sense. It's like, here's mm. how I personally reacted to it. I'm not making a real objective argument about its worth or its value to anybody who isn't me. So it's kind of strange when when people started reading those. And I remember actually, like, when I would publish some of those reviews, when my blog was relatively small. So what, The the Impossible Astronaut, which I think was 2011, um, I remember, like, my phone lighting up, literally, with, like, my WordPress host telling me, people are actually reading your blog. You should do more of this. Uh, which was a very weird, very pushy notification, but I thanked WordPress for it. Uh, and so it was kind of, it was strange kind of getting people engaging with that and kind of getting people to, to respond to that. And like throughout, I think you're right when you say that like there is something exciting about writing about Doctor Who because of the nature of the show, which is obviously you have a device that can go absolutely anywhere and any when, give or take certain stretches of the Pertwee or, you know, certain aspects of the show at certain times. But generally speaking, it's a way for the characters to hop from one story to another. They don't, you know, it's not even time and space. It's different types of stories. Mm. And again, the way in which the show would bring in different writers at different points. And again, obviously, the nature of television means that those writers were often rewritten and filtered and guided through the showrunner's aesthetic. You know, I mean, yeah. I think that 
in the writer's tale davies talks about how you know he gets really not upset upset is a very strong word but he gets kind of mildly slightly frustrated when people praise say paul cornell for his work on you know human nature and family of blood when he's like i actually i rewrote a lot of that myself i i think i maybe deserve a little bit of authorship of that and the same thing with say uh you know the, the doctor's wife which is a neil gaiman script but very much gaiman's talked about how a lot of it came from the back and forth and with the showrunner and stuff like that but even allowing for that doctor who is the rare show that can be entirely different week on week you never really know what you're going to get and i, I that's yeah. and also outside of that that change week on week the the showrunner changes uh, as well every few years which is so unlike other shows really you don't you wouldn't really get that in the same way uh, with with other shows i don't think absolutely and again like that that's one of the things that i do find fascinating is that it's almost you know we talk about doctor who as if it's it's one big show one cohesive entity from which we can garner some sort of universal truth or universal statement about what what doctor who is or isn't or should be or shouldn't be and the reality is that if you if you look at it it often feels like it's actually you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve different shows at various points in its history. Sometimes with the same lead actors, sometimes without the same lead actors, but constantly changing and constantly reacting and having different aesthetics. And like, if you were to pick an episode from John Pertwee's final season and then watch an episode from the very next year, it's quite literally like a different television mm. show. But, but I it think because of that differentiation and change, that's kind of why fans fans are so obsessed with getting to the fundamentals of what Doctor Who is. They they want to find the common elements between all of those myriad different shows, don't they? They do. And I mean, there's a lot of fun, a lot of discussion to be had there. I mean, a lot of Doctor Who, and again, this is one of the things where it sounds horribly kind of wanky when you say it, but it's like a lot of Doctor Who exists in conversation with itself because it's been running for so long that there's so much of its own history that like so much of Doctor Who often seems to be engaging with its own past and kind of refactoring that and trying to figure out where it stands now in relation to that past. I mean, like, there's an entire book to be written about, say, how, you know, various, like, writers and showrunners have responded to the success of the Troughton era and its base under siege kind of metaphor and what that means and how the base under siege, when introduced in the late 60s, perhaps has uncomfortable connotations tying into, say, Enoch Powell's kind of river of blood and the fear of immigration, the fear of kind of a changing demographic, and how later creators, while trying to tell those stories because people like the base under siege as a model of storytelling, as kind of a way of constructing a Doctor Who episode, have to figure out how that story works in, say, you know, 2008 as compared to 1968, or how it works even in 2018 as compared to 1968. Kind of yeah, I'm thinking about the, the, the boo-boo made by Mark Gatiss in 2005 when he attempted to mimic alien invasion tropes in The Unquiet Dead and ended up writing something that on the face of it now seems quite xenophobic. Yeah, that, that's it exactly. The the Gelt, it's very much, it is a Hinchcliffe, it's a Hinchcliffe fan fiction, basically. But because there's not a lot of kind of criticism there, a lot of introspection there, it ends up like regurgitating it and playing it out and becomes, I think, one of the descriptions I've read that's perhaps very telling of it is that it's an unintentional UKIP commercial, uh, which is perhaps a bit harsher than I would be, but I can definitely see yeah, it. Yeah, I, I would and say I that's a bit strong, but yes. yeah, I, I think certainly Gatiss wasn't critical enough in in thinking about the message that maybe that story's putting across. 
Yeah, and I mean, and again, like you could write a whole thing about like how base under sieges kind of have tried to to work around that. Like you want to pick episodes like, say, you know, the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People, where all of a sudden the outsiders trying to get into the base are quite literally ourselves, to pick an example. Or if you want to go to, you know, even things like, say, you know, Peter Capaldi's last episode, World Enough in Time of the Doctor Falls, which is very much a kind of a, you know, he mentioned it kind of going back to the Mondasian Cybermen, has that kind of like base under siege mentality, but it's the base under siege is the Cybermen are us. They're the same colonists. They just happen to be coming up from the bowels of the ship. So you end up taking out or trying to remove or downplay the inherent kind of xenophobia of that story structure. And I find that fascinating. That's just one example. But you have a lot of it happening over the course of the show's history where the show has been going so long that people who love it, people who engage with it, people who think about it are like, well, what does it mean when you take something from the past and kind of bring it forward? I will say in terms of in terms of Gattis, um, I, you know, I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of Gattis overall. And I think that what you the point you made was entirely correct there, which is that he tends to have a lot of affection and nostalgia for old tropes without necessarily analyzing them or criticizing them or engaging with what they actually mean. And as a result, his kind of scripts often have really uncomfortable subtext to them which I don't think is intentional, but I think is kind of largely a result of the fact that they're just how Gaddis has internalized the telling of these stories. I will say that I think Gaddis does get better as he goes along. I think that as a writer, if you chart his progress from the start of the Davies era to the end of the Moffat era, I think that Gaddis becomes more reflective, more introspective, and more willing to play and interrogate those tropes. But that's probably a discussion for another time. And more experimental, you know, he yeah. he starts writing things like Sleep No More, which love it or you hate it, is a, is a you know, it's a far more uh, experimental and far more adventurous story than something like The Unquiet Dead. And, I, you know, I don't hate The Unquiet Dead at all, but it's uh, it's Doctor Who by numbers. It is. And I mean, in entirely understandable in terms of like doing Doctor Who in 2005 oh, yeah, when you're bringing it back. Like it's like this is what Doctor Who is. It's Hinchcliffe era sort of, you know, sort of monster story slash ghost story in a kind of a folksy historical setting. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, I can understand why Davies was like, I write the first two scripts and then we bring in Gaddis and he writes the third because there's a real sense of like wanting to build continuity there and say, yeah. you know, this was what Doctor Who was and it is what it still is. So, you know, I'm not denigrating it at all. Definitely. So when did you when did you sort of start act accessing the the classic stuff then? Yeah, this is kind of interesting because I would have watched the show, um, you know, when it was on, say, 2005. I think I began to dip my toe um, into the classic stuff probably around about, say, 2007, 2008, towards the end of my college years, because I remember uh, watching it while I was in college living uh, with my grandmother um, and, you know, sort of watching it with her. And when I did dip my toe and I did a bunch of, of research, like any due diligence sort of, you know, individual, I was like, hey, so which of these am I going to be most kind of interested in watching? Which of these classic serials is most worth my attention as somebody who is kind of worth or somebody who's like very anchored in modern television, who hasn't watched a lot of Doctor Who before that point, wants something that is going to serve as a gateway drug. And I did a bunch of research online. I kind of narrowed down my prospects. I figured it was probably going to be either Tom Baker or Peter Davison were going to be the first Doctor that I would watch at Baker, for obvious reasons, because he's the most iconic. He's kind of the your example of the Doctor. There's a reason why he's the only, you know, classic actor who gets an extended role in Day of the Doctor, the 50th anniversary celebration, because he's largely, he is the Doctor to a certain generation of fans. Mm, mm. Davison, uh, I was drawn to because Davison was, at that point, outside of Patrick Troughton's small role in The Omen, the only classic Doctor Who 
actor that I was from where I was familiar with their work outside of the show, uh, Davison being an institution of British television. And so I was like, hey, I actually like Davison and other stuff. Maybe I should give him a go uh, in this. And so I kind of I went with, OK, went with looked at the stories, went with Davison. It's like, OK. What are the recommendations here? And, you know, generally around the Davison era, fan consensus seemed to kind of, you know, congeal around two particular uh, stories. Uh, first one was Earthshock and second one was Cape of Andersani. So I I ordered my, my DVDs of those um, and I, I sat down and I, I kind of watched them. And I remember watching Earthshock first because logically that was the one that came first chronologically. And... I'm going to be honest here. I suspect that my opinion of Earthshock, which I still hold to this day, is probably largely colored by that first viewing of Earthshock, which is I understand why Earthshock means so much to a lot of fans. I understand why they're drawn to it. I understand what they like about it um, entirely, completely. And I don't mean to denigrate that whatsoever. But as somebody who had never watched classic Doctor Who before, Earthshock was a very strange experience for me because it was... To somebody who at that point was, you know, my untrained eyes, was the BBC trying to do aliens, basically, on a ridiculously tiny budget, uh, running around chasing men in metal suits, you know, with gold sparkly stuff on them. And, you know, it was Davison was giving it his all. But, you know, I mean, again, it, it, it felt very melodramatic. It felt very heavy handed. It felt very self-important. And it was the, the kind of earnestness of the kind of closing credits that play over the image of Adric's shattered star was, you know, perhaps one of the most unearned attempts at an earnest ending that I had ever seen to that point. I had not seen Adric before that episode, and I really didn't care that he died at the end of it anyway. So I can only imagine how fans who had, like, spent time with Adric as a character um, probably felt. And I don't think they they really felt that sad at all. So I think that, like, no. after, after Earthshock, and again, you know, I, I understand why people like it. I don't mean to denigrate. I don't want to be mean about it. But after watching Earthshock, it was like, if... This is the best. If this is what people are telling me is the best of kind of classic Doctor Who or the best of what it has to offer. So, so this is when you learn don't trust Doctor Who fans, right? <laughs> well, no, 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 no. Hold on now. To be fair, there's a second half of this story here. You know, there's like, let's not jump to conclusions. But yes, I did learn to be suspicious of fan consensus. And, and you know, again, it, it's something that happens in, in other fan cultures as well. It's not specific to Doctor Who. You'll find that fans gravitate around particular episodes or particular concepts or particular aspects of a show or a film series. And those aren't necessarily what the the, the outsider viewer, the not we, respond to uh, in, in kind of watching them and processing them. You know, and I think that Earthshock is one of those. I think Earthshock is, is it a story that means a lot to fans, but I think if you were to stick it in front of somebody who is not a fan, you'd get a bit of an uncomfortable reaction to it. And I mean, you know, there's another story that I might tell later on about, you know, sticking Doctor Who on in front of a non-fan. At their insistence, I will add, and, and maybe not having the reaction that I expected. But I was like, yeah, so, so maybe maybe classic Doctor Who isn't for me, was what I was thinking after watching Earthshock. It's like, so okay, but I do have this DVD of the case of Andrazani, so I might as well stick it on. I mean, I'm in for a penny. I spent the money on it. Might as well watch it. And I was just hooked. Uh, the Case of Andrzejani is dazzling. It's fantastic. It's amazing. I rewatched it uh, recently as, as kind of research for this discussion that we're about to have. And I rewatched it again today just because I had like 90 minutes to kill before I came on this podcast. And it is, is stunning. It's a stunning piece of television. I imagine it was stunning when it initially aired. It is still stunning today. I don't think that there is a classic Doctor Who episode that is as tight and as claustrophobic and as paranoid as the fourth episode of The Case of Androzani. That thing is just 
propulsive. It moves. And it was like, okay, now I can get on board with Doctor Who. And to be to be clear, you know, you know, we, we were maybe a bit harsh on fandom there. Fandom has correctly identified the case of Androzani as a really, really good episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, so to I give mean, credit where credit's due. That's the thing. It's like there's a there's a vein in fandom who which I would say I'm probably a part of, which tries tries to sort of fight against the grain of fan consensus, especially about uh, kind of sort of gun stories like yes, um, guns, yeah, yeah, like Earthshock um, and, and and others. And I think actually the case of Androzani is the one gun story that even the most frock fans are like, okay, look, I'll give you that. <laughs> Like I would say, it's not my favorite Davison story. Kinder is probably my favorite Davison story, but I'd still pr- probably put the case of Angersani second. Do you know what I mean? Even though it's not the kind of story Doctor Who story I would want to see every week, or that I especially yeah. enjoy normally, it's just there's no denying it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And again, if, if we're pu- if we're kind of pinning our colors to the mast, I'd say I'm probably lean more towards frock than gun mm. uh, in terms of my taste in Doctor Who stories. And again, like, uh, you know, we talk about fan opinion. And I am generally kind of skeptical of fan opinion about stuff much like yourself. Um, I think that, you know, fandom has its own kind of blinkers on. I think it has its own politics. And I think more to the point, it has its own kind of... Um, for lack of a better word, scars probably is the best way to describe them in that like it has its own investment in particular things and its own insistence on things and its own skepticism of the general public. And again, there's a lot to talk about there, not just about Doctor Who, but in terms of like fan cultures, particularly in the 2010s, this skepticism that they have of outsiders and this mistrust that they have of outsiders and the kind of need to kind of establish their own turf, their own material that is something that they can, that is their own, that they can hold on to firmly. And so I, I am entirely kind of skeptical of that, but I, I did watch the case of Anders Annie, love the case of Anders Annie. It was like, okay, fine. You, you got me. I'm going to, I'm going to dip in. I'm going to be a bit more careful now about which ones yeah. I choose to ease myself in. Uh, I think I jumped from that. But the to, thing is, uh, once you've seen how good it can be, you're more forgiving of how, how bad it can be. Absolutely. And again, even once you've seen how good it is, when you watch the bad stuff, you begin to contextualize it. You begin to understand that a large part of with the bad stuff is either A, the show trying to do something new and good and falling flat on its face, which is how film and television and particularly television production works. Mm. It's a learn as you go process. And so you're kind of more forgiving of it then. Or, you know, when it's not that, as maybe it is during the extended Colin Baker era, it often feels like, you know, that weird section in like a biopic where the character has to work through their demons and kind of come out the other end, kind of cleansed or baptized as a result. Very much kind of almost like an exorcism of the worst aspects of itself. I wish the Colin Baker era could have been over and done in a montage, like in a biopic. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) What I mean, like in any documentary of Doctor Who history, you know, the Colin Baker era is going. And again, I'm sure there are people who like it and I'm really glad that they do. Whatever you find joy in is your own business. And I think that, you know, the Colin Baker era at least has vengeance on Barrows. But yeah, wow, okay. Um, But, you know, I mean, (laughs) whatever floats your boat, guys. But I mean, more generally speaking, though, yeah, I I think that, you know, when you have, yeah, that that sort of stuff, I can imagine in a documentary accounting the history of Doctor Who, the Baker, the Colin Baker era will be largely reduced to some sort of like nightmarish montage. (laughs) Which, and everyone would be like, did that happen? Well, we're not going to go back and look at it. So let's just say that it did and move on. What would the music be? I'm thinking <laughs> um, either The Entertainer or um, <laughs> or the Benny Hill music or potentially, um, you know, the Mexican hat dance? 
I don't know the Mexican hat dance, actually. How does it even go? It's Homer Simpson's ringtone. Ah, okay. Yes, 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 yes. How does it go? <laughs> I can just think of the... Im- Im- uh, oh, it's, it goes... <laughs> That's okay. yeah. While contrasting with the horrific, horrific imagery on yeah, screen, yeah. which you can't unsee. You I want cannot fur, unsee. I want fur voids with that music. I want Sill with that music. <laughs> um, have you seen the new Sill film where Sophie Aldred, dressed as a draconian, um, gives Sill a bath? I have not, but I feel like I have now. Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to see that. Um, anyway, Is my I wanna... mental image better or worse? <laughs> it's. I. I. Well, I wouldn't want to say either way. <laughs> um, I want to park that Davison discussion just for a sec. Um, because we were going to go there in unpopular opinions. Um, territory. Um, but I wanted to ask you because I think you're um my first um Irish guest on Galactic Yo-Yo. Um, so I wanted to ask you about Doctor Who in Ireland and, and kind of what the reputation of the show is over there and, and how, yeah, well, what's the, are things different with Doctor Who in Ireland? Um, I, I, being honest, I'm probably the worst person else. I don't really know that much. I will say that when I was getting into it, I would obviously have that conversation with my parents. And I was staggered to discuss that actually both of my parents do have like Doctor Who fandoms. Mm. Um, and again, both old and new. And again, it's kind of weird. I suppose it makes a great deal of sense in terms of Irish broadcasting because Irish broadcasting up until, you know, I think 1980 consisted largely of just RTE1. We had one channel and the BBC that we pirated from the UK. Right. So of course we liked Doctor Who. Of course we were watching Doctor Who. And I think my mom was a Pertwee fan and my dad was a, was a sort of Baker fan, which is kind of interesting because my dad is actually technically older than my mother but suggests that he was actually watching Doctor Who while he was in college, which I think says a lot about who my dad is and what he did while he was at college. And I'm kind of proud of that fact, actually, as well. Um, but in terms of, of fandom, I will note that a lot of people who I know who are into geek subcultures here in Ireland, um, Speaking Geek, uh, the Irish Geek podcast, for example, um, or even say, you know, scan on the, the, the Irish film podcast that I occasionally work with, um, they're big fans of of Doctor Who at the revival. Um, and I will say that actually people you would, even people you would least expect um, have Doctor Who opinions, which is kind of, again, speaks to the power of, say, the Davies era in terms of making Doctor Who cool Definitely. and popular again. Like, again, I know people who would absolutely not watch science fiction on television, but who think Eccleston is the bomb as the Doctor, which mm. is rather surreal. It's a very strange thing, and perhaps, for, perhaps a uniquely Irish thing, I think, as well, because you have that kind of Manchester, kind of like northern thing going on, where you have this kind of like sense of, of kind of solidarity between... Ireland and kind of the North in terms of England, in terms of characterization, where it's like, yep, if there's a good doctor, it's the one from the North. Um, But you also kind of, outside of that, you have a lot of fandom for Tennant, a lot of fandom for Smith as well. Perhaps maybe a bit less for Capaldi, uh, but I think that's across the board in general. Um, Because, you know, again, I I am a huge Capaldi fan, and Capaldi's my favorite doctor, but I do think that he maybe hasn't had the same level of cultural impact as his three, or his two predecessors, and his one kind of, the one following him. There was no sort of Gaelic solidarity with Capaldi then. <laughs> um, surprisingly not. No. Um, but how but did it, it feel when when Doctor Who had its first story <laughs> set in Ireland earlier this year, and then it turned out it wasn't set in Ireland at all? Um, it was actually set on Gallifrey. It was really, really, really weird. <laughs> um, really disconcerting. Um, in in large part, and again, I don't I don't want to get too much into this because I mean, you mentioned coming across my my opinions of like the eleven and twelve seasons of the the Chibnall era and kind of the the Whitaker era, and I I'm not 
I'm not a huge fan of them, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that, like, for a lot of people, that is their Doctor Who, and it's their introduction to the show. And I always feel like a bit of a Grinch when I'm like, I didn't, I'm not really a fan of, you know, what the Chibnall era does and how it does it, because I always feel like I'm crashing somebody's party and just sort of being a bit mean for the sake of it. But I, I, I do think that the use of Ireland in, you know, um, Ascension of the Cybermen is an interesting uh, choice, in large part because it, it it seems to fit with Chibnall's own like sensibilities as a writer in that it feels very much like an episode of Heartbeat that has arrived far too late, despite being set in Ireland. It's, it very much feels like a rural British police procedural that just happens yeah. to be set in Ireland so that Chibnall can make the continuity reference to Gallifrey. Is that yes. in Ireland? Well, it seemed just like an extended in-joke. Once they revealed yeah. it was Gallifrey, it's like, oh, okay, that's just... And I don't know, it just seemed a bit insulting to the Irish that it, it, the, the one time we visited Ireland in Doctor Who um, was was an excuse for an in-joke, an extended in-joke. Uh, and I mean, the weird thing about it is, and again, not to get, drag us too far down this discussion, is that I think that there is a lot of interesting stuff you could do there. Because there is obviously, you know, if you wanted to be charitable to Ascension of the Cybermen and the Timeless Children, and to be absolutely clear... I am not, but if you wanted to extend the benefit of the doubt, you could say that it is a story that could be read as a metaphor, however muddled, for colonial exploitation, and therefore having a sequence in which the Doctor is, you know, effectively an exploited immigrant, uh, but filtering that through, you know, the imagery of Ireland, which is the closest colony, and you know, Northern Ireland is still arguably the only exigent British colony or British overseas colony that exists, could be a gateway to a potent metaphor. It could be a way of exploring, you know, the legacy of kind of some of the stuff that the show is maybe awkwardly, half-heartedly, limply gesturing towards. It's true. But it's I don't really. think the Chibnall era really does intentional metaphor, though. I think if it, if it wanted to tackle, um, you know, uh, colonial topics and, and involve Ireland in that, it would it would do a story about Ireland in the past. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I yeah. think this era, this era tackles difficult topics like that, and I commend it for that. It, you know, stories like Rosa, Demons of the Punjab, etc., um, and I think if if Chibnall wanted to tackle that, he would go to Ireland and he'd do a, he'd do a story about some some Irish event in history. Yeah, um, and I would kind of being honest entirely dread that. Um, but oh, let's yeah. face it, it 100%. wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> um, but I, I do find it interesting that yes, that, that Doctor Who has kind of largely avoided Ireland. But again, that's that's if if you want to draw kind of an extrapolation from that in terms of Doctor Who as a cultural artifact or Doctor Who as a reflection of the British psyche, which it is, because all television and all pop culture, you know, is a reflection of the time and place that it's made. But you have this idea, and again, it, it's something that I don't want to get too much into because whenever I bring it up, there's always wariness of kind of you know turning into a stereotypical begrudged Irishman. But the sense in which kind of England. And, and the United Kingdom, you know, maybe, you know, obviously they, ha and I'm wary of talking to you as, as an English or British person about this and seeming like I'm lecturing you, but a sense in which maybe the United Kingdom hasn't entirely made peace with its colonial history. And to be absolutely clear, the Irish are not the worst victims of this. I am not saying that or suggesting that at all. And I feel really bad that I have to because there's a real victim mentality that happens in some segments of like the Irish diaspora about the treatment of the Irish. We absolutely did not suffer worse than, than other nations as a result of colonialism or imperialism. Mm. But I do think that, you know, there is a sense in British pop culture of maybe not 
being cognizant or not dealing with the reality of that as it relates to your closest neighbor. And again, wary of talking about this in the context of, you know, a podcast about Doctor Who, but things like, say, the the Brexit situation, where nobody appears to have considered what would happen with the border in Ireland. You know, the land... It it seemed like an afterthought, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's that wonderful Channel 4 news segment where people are asked to draw the Irish border, which has been in the news for God knows how long at that point. And most of them just drew a line across the middle of the island. Uh, but even, even things like, you know, Pity Patel's statement about like, well, if the Irish aren't going to give us beneficial terms, maybe we'll just cut the food we send them, which is, you know, A, we, we are a very food secure nation. B, the reason we're a very food secure nation is perhaps related to the subtext of the statement that you made there to do with the Irish famine and, and Britain's involvement in that. And there's a sense in which, you know, maybe that hasn't really been processed or dealt with. So I, I, I understand why Dr. There's, there's the Rhys really interview as well, where he suggests, so we'll just put military on the border like during the Troubles. And you're just yeah. like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a great solution, Jacob. Um, yeah. This has gone yeah. far from the Doctor Who uh, discussion. Uh, yeah, but... disgusting apologies. <laughs> about that. But to bring it back to Doctor Who, that, that's that's to explain why I, I I understand why Doctor Who has never been drawn to Ireland particularly. Because drawing it to Ireland would mean having to unpack a lot of that stuff. Mm. And unpacking mm. a lot of that stuff is, you know, and again, I, I, I love what Doctor Who is capable of. I think Doctor Who is capable of doing incredible things. But I think that unpacking that stuff would require a level of skill that would mandate the show being on one of its best days ever. And, you know, I mean, I'm not sure I'd roll the dice on that, if that makes sense. Mm, mm, mm. Great. Should we talk about unpopular opinions then? <laughs> Yes, after the Brexit slash Ireland slash colonial discussion. Let's lighten the mood a little bit. Let's jump into unpopular opinions. Great. So you were going to talk to me about Peter Davison. Yes. So, yes, I am a huge Peter Davison fan, as you might expect. I mean, the, the common thing about Doctor Who fans is that the you know, you might have different opinions about who the best doctor is, but the doctor that you kind of latch on to, the doctor who you most identify with, is typically the first one that you saw because they define your vision of what the doctor should be. Mm. And... For me, obviously, my, my first one was was Tennant and, you know, kind of I have a strong attachment to Tennant. But I think my first classic one was Davison. And Davison is is fascinating to me in large part because I really, really, really like Davison's Doctor. And I actually really like the Fifth Doctor's era as a whole, despite the fact that, dramatic pause, it is not always very good. Um, and I think that, like, one of the things that I really like about the Davison era is the fact that Davison as an actor, almost seems to entirely construct an arc out of his era through sheer perseverance. I don't think like a lot of what the Fifth Doctor era is, inverted commas, about is a result of intentional planning or preparation or of kind of like a vision of a script editor or producer. But I think that when you watch it, it becomes this weird cohesive entity that feels like it's saying something that is almost vaguely profound about the character of the Doctor and his role in the universe. And that this happens almost entirely in spite of the scripts, but because of Davison's performance. Uh, And it's a remarkable performance. And for this podcast, I asked you to delay the recording of this. And I thank you very much for doing that because it gave me a chance to rewatch a lot of the Davison era. And it was just a delight. But yeah, so just, just to give a kind of a basic sense of what I'm talking about here, right? So the 
Davison inherited the role from Tom Baker, obviously. Baker, the most iconic Doctor. The version of the Doctor who you are most likely to see on, say, The Simpsons, for example. The version of the Doctor who, up until David Tennant and Matt Smith, was most likely to be identified as the Doctor by American audiences because he was constantly on PBS. He was in the role for seven years. He defined it. He shaped it. He provided an archetype. He was the Doctor. So his departure was a pretty big deal for the show. And what you see is you have... Again, we talked about how, you know, when when Doctor Who is seen as being various different shows, so much of it is reacting to or engaging with the version that it used to be. After Baker leaves, you have this almost immediate reaction kind of against him. And what happens is that you see a number of decisions which are all made independently for good reasons, as in they they all have, there's individual reasons why these individual choices are made, and all of those individual choices are relatively sound. Um, he says, making sure that you can hear the inverted commas around relatively, but are, are kind of like make sense in the context of the show, but which add up to something that is much stranger, much weirder, and much more uncomfortable than any of the individual elements. So to pick an example, right? When a series lead departs Doctor Who, and it's become a lot more common in the revival, there's a tendency to basically kind of gamble and to basically to kind of weight the show in such a way as to give the new arrival benefit of the doubt. So to pick an example, when Matt Smith arrived, they made a point to shoot his episodes out of sequence. They actually shot the uh, Angels two-parter first so that he'd be uh -huh. working with, you know, um, so he'd be working with Kingston, Alex Kingston. And so he'd have a kind of a grounding there and came back and did his first episode when he was more settled in the role. But what typically happens is when you have a new actor arriving, you tend to crowd them out with kind of characters who are established in order to keep the audience on side. So like when Tennant arrived, he arrived with, you know, Jackie and Rose Tyler, with mm. Mickey, with Harriet Jones brought back. And so he was able to kind of like be eased into the role with the understanding that viewers would still accept it as the same show. When Capaldi arrived, he regenerated around the, the Pater Noster gang, you know, for example, you know, Strax, um, Lady Vastra and Jenny, um, who were a recurring fixture, particularly during the season leading up to his arrival, which again gave this sense of kind of continuity and carrying over. For sure. So when you, when you have Baker uh, leaving, you have this huge crowding of the TARDIS. You have Nyssa there. You have Tegan there. You have Adric there. You have three companions competing for space. Well, they sort, the of, idea... they sort of set up the Davison era gradually around Tom Baker, don't they? And then they yeah. remove Tom Baker as that final piece and they replace him with Peter Davison. And, and, and by then, you've sort of, you're sort of used to all this restructuring going on. So it That's feels it. like less of a big deal, right? That's it, exactly. Um, it, it's very much kind of largely like putting a support structure in place in case Davison isn't able to fill the role that mm. was left by Baker. It's very much kind of a hedging of the bets. And so as a result, you have this weird situation where, you know, for the first time since, you know, argue, from, from Tom Baker's first season when he had two companions, although Harry Sullivan was very quickly rendered redundant. But really for the first time since, you know, the Hartnell era, you have this really packed, really crowded TARDIS, which kind of naturally by default makes the Doctor a much smaller part of that dynamic because he's suddenly not a half or a third of the dynamic, he's suddenly a quarter of the dynamic. And you're doing that at a point where the actor hasn't already established his screen persona in the role. So you have these characters who, as you pointed out, have already been kind of set up and laid out and already defined, even if definition is fairy tale princess, annoying teenager, and mouthy stewardess, but at least they have kind of characterization along those lines. But you have basically the Davison kind of thrown in and being introduced as a new element on top of that. Uh, outside of that, you have things like, say, the push towards, again, soap opera dynamics, where there's this emphasis throughout Davison's first season 
on the idea of companions being a bit sassier, a bit more combative, and a bit less reliable than they used to be. And again, this makes a certain amount of sense in context, because in British television in the 80s, you had this push towards soap operas. I think Coronation Street had been on since 1960, but Brookside would launch in 1982. EastEnders would launch in 1984. And in fact, actually, EastEnders would launch... Let's not forget El Dorado as well. Yeah, that's the classic that is. But yeah, you have this sense of like television pushing towards that. And so as a result, you want companions who are not just, you know, the people who ask, what's this do, Doctor? They're all of a sudden characterized as individuals. Now, you hit a bit of a brick wall when it turns out the Davison era can't really do characterization at all. So it largely consists of several things. First of all, Adric continuously misbehaving and betraying the Doctor. So betraying the Doctor to the Master, you know, whether cheekily or inverted commas, or just out of pain and suffering in Castro Valva. Betraying him to the giant reptile overlord Monarch in Fort of Doomsday. Um, you know, and basically, like, disobeying the Doctor in Kinda, getting himself trapped inside that kind of giant alien exoskeleton, randomly firing blanks into the crowd because he refuses to listen. And you have this kind of sense of, like, Tegan, who but, continues... And even when, even when Adric um, departs from the show, you continue to have that influence because Turlo's pretty much Adric 2.0, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Like, Turlow is completely unreliable. He's like, the companion who's there to kill the doctor. That's his function. Yeah. And the, the I think it's, to be fair, though, I think it's in. done It's done better with Turlow yeah. because he gets his conflict and he resolves his conflict. And it's it's a little, I mean, it's no, it's not perfect characterization, but it's it's much more nicely done than, than Adric. Yes, and Strixon is, I would argue, a much better actor than Waterhouse. Apologies to Waterhouse mm -hmm. for that. But I think that it kind of it works for that reason. But again, even within that and after that, you have like, you know, Chameleon who's brought in, who is again planted by the master, you know, in order to betray the doctor. And like even if you pick like the ideal companion, the longest serving companion in the Davison era TARDIS, that is Janet Fielding's sort of Tegan. You know, she is continuously pointing out how useless, how pointless, how ineffectual the Doctor is. I mean, like, I watched Time Flight, which nobody should do under any circumstances, but a large part of Time Flight consists of the Doctor showing up in Heathrow, trying to help, trying to find missing planes, and Tegan saying, maybe we should just leave this to professionals, given your track record on this sort of thing. And again, you have this really kind of catty back and forth, where, like, if you watch Time Flight, and again, not intentionally, Nobody on the production was planning this, I think, but because it's so shoddily put together, it actually looks like the Fifth Doctor passive-aggressively abandons Tegan at the airport because he's just glad to be rid of her. <laughs> but like then in Arc of Infinity, he can't. He can't be glad to be rid of her because the universe has decided the two of them are kind of fated to be together. Mm. So you have this kind of, and again... Fielding has been entirely and entirely accurately, to be fair, critical of the portrayal and characterization of Tegan as shrewish in Vertical as that sexist cliche. She is entirely right about that. So I'm not, you know, let don't I'm not I'm not praising the portrayal or characterization of Tegan to be absolutely clear. But I do think that like you have this sense of kind of the soap opera dynamics misfiring so spectacularly as to underscore how terrible the fifth doctor is in terms of managing his companions. Like when you have previous doctors and think of say John Pertwee, think of uh, Tom Baker, the two immediate kind of precedents, the actors who've been playing the role in the 12 years before Davison showed up, they immediately showed up and had complete command of the situation they were in. The fifth doctor, as a result of this effort to write really bad soap opera, 
can't possibly keep pace or keep track with that. He can't manage his companions, which is fundamentally like one of the core aspects of Doctor Who. The core function of the Doctor is to keep his companions safe. If the Doctor can't keep his companions safe, the entire show falls apart because you don't trust this person to travel in time and space, kind of with this person who has entrusted them with their life. And again, uh, what's interesting is that like in the Davies era, sorry, in the Davison era, you have a lot of these ideas that like later writers like Davies and Moffat actually mine and turn into good drama. So like a large part of the Davies era is this kind of tension between the doctor and the companion, the question of can he keep the companion safe? Can he fulfill that narrative function? But it's a lot more planned out. It's a lot better written than it is during the Davison era, where the Davison doctor repeatedly just feels like he's kind of failing at the most basic task. Again, I love Caves of Androzani. Caves of Androzani is arguably the perfect archetypal, like, Davison-era Doctor Who story because the companion almost dies because she falls down a hole because the Doctor takes her to Androzani Minor. Like, she literally just slips and falls in the background and ends up almost dead as a result, which is the most basic and fundamental failure kind of of the Doctor as the Doctor in inverted commas. That's kind of interesting in that context as well. And then you have other things going on, like, say, for example, the shifting of the air dates. So, like, for the first time during Davison's first season, you had Doctor Who airing twice weekly. Um, and therefore kind of cutting down how many weeks it run over the course of the year, but also leading to the restructuring of the show. And so you have, say, Castrovalva, which is the first Davison-era story, right? And the first Davison-era story, which is called Castrovalva, and from which you would infer the story of Castrovalva is about Castrovalva, is effectively two linked two-parters. And they only get to Castrovalva in the second half of the story, which leads to a weird situation where... Well, the first, Davison... the first half is a sort of Legopolis epilogue, isn't it? That's it, exactly. Um, which gets at that kind of sense of the Doctor... I'll tell you what they... it feels like, actually. It feels like, you know, the Children in Need um, sketch where um, Tennant and, and Billy Piper are talking straight after Tennant's regenerated? Yes, at the end of Parting the Ways. Yeah, yeah, it's like that, but extended as a two-parter. That's that, it, exactly. Yeah. And, and again, like you can see logically why that's the case. You can see that Bidmead, who's writing it, is like, this is going to go out in two blocks of two parts each so i might as well structure the story around that and therefore have you know one of those two weeks given over to well davison's here now and the other week being well here's the actual story but when you watch it you have this weird situation where davison spends the you know first half of his first story groping around in the dark looking for the story looking for the narrative and kind of failing to find it unraveling like tom baker's tie which kind of immediately establishes the idea that you know maybe he's not set up for this role this narrative role of the doctor and again you know that idea i think that like moffat uh, really hits on with capaldi i think around about say the magician's apprentice and the witch is familiar where you have this kind of discussion about how for the doctor or even going back to say the name of the doctor and the day of the doctor this idea that like the Doctor isn't the person, it's a title. And that each of the iterations of the Doctor kind of has to earn that title. You know, on a good day, I get to be the Doctor. Or I don't get to call myself the Doctor when I don't do things that are worthy of the Doctor. That sort of stuff. That's kind of interesting when you watch the Davison era in hindsight. What you end up with is as a result of these sorts of choices, you end up with a weird situation where the fifth Doctor often feels like he's an iteration who can't manage the basics of being a lead in Doctor Who, uh -huh. who's kind of constantly struggling to like find the story that he's meant to be part of or to do the basic task of keeping his companions safe. 
He is notably the first doctor to lose a companion since William Hartnell, to actually have a companion killed since William Hartnell as well. And on top of all the other stuff we mentioned where they're constantly betraying him, yelling at him or not listening to him. It's again, it's kind of fascinating where he seems to be unable to actually be the doctor. And again, it's fascinating that Davison has talked about how when he was working on the show, his favorite of the kind of ensemble, his favorite companion to work with, or the companion that he felt got the shortest shrift was actually Nyssa. And if you watch the Davison era stories, and again, I wonder if maybe this is what contributes to Davison's fondness of Nyssa as a companion, but Nyssa is the one companion in the Davison era TARDIS who actually behaves like a Doctor Who companion. She's the one who asks the questions that motivate the plot. She's the one who doesn't cause any sass or drama. She's the one who actually kind of goes around and, you know, falls into the traditional companion role of getting trapped, for example, or providing exposition. I think there's a wonderful sequence in The Visitation, which again, quite yeah, and early. She, and she does that without ever really feeling like a damsel. Yeah, yeah, which again is, is remarkable. And again, there's a wonderful sequence in I think the visitation where and I kind of again it's one of those things where you're watching Davison's performance and you're like, is that in the script or is that something that Davison is just kind of like looking at the script and going, the only way I can make this work is the way that I'm gonna do it. But there's a moment where when they're breaking into the house. Nyssa and the Fifth Doctor go in round the corner and sneak in a window while Tegan and Hadric are outside the front door trying to pick it. And Nyssa asks, Doctor, should we let the other two in yet? And the Fifth Doctor goes, oh, no, 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 not yet. We should, uh, we should make sure it's safe first. And you get a real sense of the Fifth Doctor being like, no, 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 you're here. I actually get to have a proper companion. I might actually get to be the Doctor. Let's just leave... <laughs> Adric and Tegan and all their issues outside for the moment. Let me enjoy this. Yeah, like a sort of family unit where the, where Adric and Tegan are the are the tantruming teenagers and yeah. uh, Doctor and Nissa are the are the, the parental figures. What about Davison's kind of act, the, the the bones of Davison's performance then? Because obviously um, Tom Baker's performance was was huge and eccentric and incredibly memorable, and it must have been a challenge for the production team to find an actor who would live up to Baker's performance without seeming like it was trying too hard to live up to Baker's performance. So they, obviously they went for this more understated performance and this more, um, and this, this, this younger, more, more understated, more human actor um, in Davison. And I think as a result, um, the fan consensus has been since the eighties that Davison's kind of the boring act, a boring doctor when compared to Baker. Um, it's obviously not something that everybody thinks, but but what's your what's your stance there? Again, and and you know, one of the things about Davison is that again, he's hugely influential. I mean, you know, you mentioned the the Children in Need short with Tennant and Piper. The Children in Need short with Tennant and Davison actually makes a point of saying that you know, you were my doctor. You were the first doctor who was young and kind of flitting around, and you can see a lot of. You know, you mentioned Baker being larger than life and, you know, you'd argue kind of pantomimic. I think that like I think Baker's performance is actually quite good. And I think that like Baker's quite good because he understands the parameters in which he's working. I think that Baker's performance in, say, the final year of his tenure is really, really great in large part because you're so used to seeing Baker larger than life that when you see Baker kind of dialed down and kind of like, you know, just a little bit more lethargic, it has this huge impact. Again, this sense of, you know, dialing and calibrating his performance. But Davison's performance of the Doctor is much more, you know, actorly. It, it, it you know, it, it doesn't feel larger than life. It feels very much like an actor looking at his scripts asking, how 
do I possibly kind of make this work? How do I take this dialogue, this situation that I'm in, and how do I sell this as a character that has a believable kind of internal psychology to them? And again, you know, I think that I think it was Elizabeth Sandifer who actually made the point that the Davison version of the Doctor is the first one who actually feels like he has a realistic, in inverted commas, internal psychology or internal life to him. And a large part of that yeah. is down to Davison's performance. And I mean, to, to pick an example, um, take the episode Snake Dance, uh, which is massively underrated. I would argue it is the best story of the 20th anniversary season. And the way that that is written is largely around the idea of the Doctor realizing that, you know, the Mar is around and that it represents a threat and nobody listening to the Doctor as he rants and raves about this, as he tries to take command of the situation. And again, this is very much a characterization of the Doctor that exists in opposition to the characterization of kind of the Pertwee and Baker Doctors. And so therefore you have this kind of, you mentioned the fan consensus of kind of Davison being boring, but arguably being impotent. And again, we'll, we'll maybe come back to that because I think that like one of the more unfortunate things about the, the Davison era is the way in which the show occasionally seems to actually buy that and play into that, and particularly in, say, scripts like Earthshock um, as well. Mm. So maybe we'll put a pin in that and come back to it. But in Snake Dance, uh, what's fascinating about Davison's performance is that he looks at the script, he realizes what it demands of the audience's expectations of both the Doctor as a character and him in general, and so he tailors his performance to it. And if you watch it, Davison's performance there is slightly more manic, slightly more intense, and slightly more frantic than the episodes around it. And you can see that he has, as an actor, said, this needs me to sell the idea that people aren't going to believe the Doctor when he runs into a room and says, everybody's in horrible danger. Even though the fundamental premise of Doctor Who is that when the Doctor runs into a room and says, everybody's in danger everybody believes him immediately. Yeah. And so you have you have kind of Davison calibrate his performance so it becomes a little bit more nervous, a little more energetic, a little bit more hectic. His mm. his movements become a bit more jerky and it's very very finely calibrated. I'm not going to pretend it's anywhere near as sophisticated as say Midnight, which mm. is something where Davies as a writer does something like that, but you can see almost the origins of that idea there. And even in weaker scripts, even in scripts that are, you know, let's face it terrible, like say A Warriors of the Deep, you have this sense of Davison looking at this and going, maybe there's no way for me to get out of this with my dignity intact, mm -hmm. but maybe I can find an interesting way to play a particular line. Is it the uh, the Myra, the kind of pantomime seahorse, which is the moment where the creature appears on screen? And it is, you know, a monster is so terrible that it effectively led to an investigation of Doctor Who by the BBC. Uh, and, you know, you could argue drew a direct line from that to the, the kind of cancellation or at least the suspension and then from the suspension towards the eventual cancellation. But you have Davison looking at this pantomime horse monster being asked to sell the idea that this thing's absolutely terrifying and realizing he can't do it. So instead <laughs> plays it as this kind of exhausted, exasperated kind of what now performance, which is again a wonderful, like very actorly choice, which is not in the script, but which makes the moment I think pop a bit more than it might otherwise. And again, is Whereas entirely I, what Baker would have done in that situation would be to start nodding and winking at the camera, which is fine too, but is really different from yeah. what Davison became. I think. Would you agree that Peter Davison is the best actor to have played the Doctor in the classic series? 
Yes, I think Troughton is probably the only one who comes close in terms of competition. And I'm wary of saying that in large part because so much of the Troughton era is missing. Uh, but I think that, yes, in terms of actual performance, I think Davison is the best actor. Mm. He's the one who is most and, and not necessarily even in e- even in that performance of the Doctor, though. Do oh, you no, think no. Peter no, Davison general, is yeah. the best actor? Yeah. In terms of British television as a whole. And again, Davison. And again, it's kind of interesting that Davison has this background in comedy, like largely outside of Doctor Who, what he's best known for is kind of his work in British television comedy. And and yet somehow, you know, you decide that that's not the direction that you're going to take the Doctor or his version of the Doctor, which is kind of fascinating as well, because I think it speaks to Davison as an actor, that it's like you have this actor who is really known for kind of one thing or for one approach to kind of British television, who is beloved for his ability to be funny and wry and witty and kind of sitcommy. And again, like you point to things like, say, the five-ish Doctor's reboot, which is very much like that is arguably a script that I think fits Davison's screen persona much more than anything that he did while he was on Doctor Who. But I kind of love that Davison um, kind of like despite the fact that he was not getting scripts that were tailored to his strengths or his character or his approach was still able to kind of calibrate his performance towards them uh, in a way that I think is kind of interesting and speaks well of him as an actor. In terms of that, obviously you were touching on that, that Children in Need um sketch before as well with with um with davison and tennant um would you kind of do, do you think that's kind of em- emblematic of the influence that davison has had on the more actorly performances of the of the new who doctors i i think so i think i think it's a very clear line and again you know not even the actorly performances you could argue the casting of mm. younger doctors and younger actors in the role because davison very much kind of stands out in terms of kind of the classic series as being the young doctor the one kind of running around i think that yes there is a lot in terms of say Tennant's performance that you can trace back to davison as as an actor and again while matt smith has talked openly about how troughton was kind of his biggest influence as well i think that maybe in how the role was written under moffat as well you can see a very clear line in terms of kind of taking aspects of the davison an era and kind of working them into the characterization of the doctor and the actors playing off that as well i think that yeah if you were to show somebody a kind of a classic doctor who performance and you wanted them to look at it and kind of see it as a good you know as a good as an actor acting very well um the davison era would be the way to do it i will say that like again i, I joked earlier in, in the podcast that i'd tell a story about introducing the not we to classic doctor who uh, when when I was kind of like in my earlier days living with a roommate and my partner, um, they at one stage decided they wanted to watch an episode of Doctor Who. They decided that they'd arrive while I was watching an episode of Doctor Who and not let me pick one specifically to welcome them in, which was a mistake. Um, so I was watching The Happiness Patrol, uh, which I love. The Happiness Patrol is one of my it's favorite fantastic. episodes of Doctor Who. It's amazing. It is not an episode of television that you show somebody who is not familiar with the workings of classic Doctor Who, though. No. Um, and one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life is being like, I, I can turn this off. You guys, like, you're clearly not enjoying this. I can, like, if you want to watch a, another Doctor Who, I can find a good one. Or we could just watch television. And both of them being like, no, no, no. You like Doctor Who. We want to see what it's all about. We're going to watch this until the bitter end. And kind of having this really uncomfortable experience where, because, you know, as a Doctor Who fan, you've kind of calibrated your understanding of television to the show and it kind of you you understand its strengths and its weaknesses and then seeing it through the eyes of somebody who people who haven't necessarily kind of done that you have that kind of sense of well 
yeah, there's a real disconnect between those two extremes. Whereas I think that if I had been watching, say, The Case of Androzani or even Kinda, and again, like Kinda is one of those stories that illustrates the gap between fandom and the not we, where there's this real embarrassment among certain strains of fandom, not not to cliche or not not to be kind of, you know, not to be cliche or to talk in terms of archetypes or stereotypes. But there's an embarrassment around Kinda around the rubber snake in the final sequence of the episode and the idea that that affects to the extent that they even replace the special effects on the DVD. Yeah, they replace terrible puppetry with terrible CGI, which is an interesting lateral move, if we're being entirely honest. But I think that like that speaks to like the oddness of how fans perceive how they are perceived by other people where i suspect that if you were to show a not fan kinda and then show them earthshock they would probably be more interested in kinda they'd probably be much more interested in the episode of television that has the better performances and the bigger ideas than the one that tries to do aliens on a BBC budget. Um, and again, you, you kind of, you arguably even have that within the Davison era, because you have that sense of Doctor Who at war with itself. I don't think there's ever been a point in Doctor Who's history outside of maybe, if you want to be generous, the Pertwee era, where you had this tension between Gunn and Frock actually playing out in real time. I think that generally speaking, you know, you can break large portions of the show down into either Gunn or Frock, you know, for example, I would say the Colin Baker era is largely gun, for example. And I would say that like a large part of the, the McCoy era is Frock, if, if you want to kind of characterize in those broad sure. terms. But I think that the Davison era is kind of interesting because you have the gun and Frock elements at war with themselves. You have a season that contains both Kinda and Earthshock. And like those are, I would argue, two extremes in terms of what Doctor Who can do. And they come almost right after one another. And again, you have the sense of, of Davison being asked as an actor to reconcile these two versions of the show with one another. The version of Earthshock, which is very much critical of the Doctor in general, it seems, but specifically this iteration of the Doctor, and seems insistent, and again, in a very uncomfortable way, that he's not sufficiently masculine enough to play the role of hero that the show has decided he needs to play in the 80s, as compared to this weird psychodrama about the power of dreams and colonialism and the idea that ideas kind of creep into our head, multiply and corrupt us, which is this very existential, you know, kind of, again, that the comparison is Buddhist. I've never really seen Kinda as particularly Buddhist, particularly since it draws from like Judeo-Christian imagery of the snake in the Garden of Eden, literally throwing mm. apples down on the head of innocent people. But again, this idea of kind of a spiritual kind of broader you know, existential philosophical piece, uh, which I find interesting that you have within the Davison era, these two very different ideas of what Doctor Who was going to be in the 80s, playing off one another so close together. And again, Davison as an actor, having to find a way to make them the same show, to find a way to say that the character that you see in Kinda is the same character you see in Earthshock, for and example. And he definitely pulls it off. He, he's so skilled and definitely pulls that off. It's interesting to think about. It, it, it made me think when you brought up the, the Happiness Patrol, it made me think of McCoy's performance and the fact that really, you know, both of those actors before they were cast were known for comedy. And M McCoy is obviously more of a broad comedian um, than, than Davison. Davison more of a comic actor rather than a comedian. But still, it, it's interesting the difference in approach there because clearly with with McCoy the 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 brilliance derives from the fact that okay this is this zany spoons player and we're putting him in this dramatic role and the 
the genius um comes from the the juxtaposition there right whereas yeah. in the whereas in the davison era it's like okay we're getting this comedian and we're watching him sort of alchemically um working out how to make this realistic and make it work and not feel like a juxtaposition yeah and again like that's that's the power of kind of davison is that again like Watching the Davison era and rewatching it for the discussion of this podcast, I was amazed at how frequently I'd find myself saying, this is terrible, but also kind of brilliant. Mm. Um, so, like, I mean, even say things like, say, Resurrection of the Daleks, which is by any measure, I would argue the weakest 80s Dalek story. And it's, if we're being frank, probably quite terrible. But you watch Davison in it and it becomes this kind of weird thing that is much more interesting than the basic script or premise or setup would suggest. Where you have Davison kind of playing the doctor as almost becoming unhinged. And again, you, you have that sense of this kind of criticism of the doctor kind of doubling back on itself. Where Earthshock, which again was also written by Eric Seward, seems to be written around the really disturbing and unsettling and uninterrogated premise that the doctor needs to be more of a killer than a coward, you know, that he needs to be more of a man of action. And if you were more of a man of action, and I really sense uncomfortably the emphasis is on man in inverted commas there, that, you know, if he could do that, maybe he could keep his companion safe, but he's not. So he's a failure which is really uncomfortable, really disconcerting. And, you know, particularly in the and context a strange of hypothesis when prior to that, that's never how the previous doctors had kept their companions safe. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and particularly in the context of the 80s, where you had, I think it aired a couple of months before the Falklands War started as well, mm. where you have this kind of resurgence of kind of military patriotism. And again, you know, maybe maybe we're getting too late in the podcast to discuss this. One of the interesting things about the Davison era is it's one of those points in Doctor Who where it feels like the show, and again, I feel it, this is a really strange like defense of the Davison era where I'm like, Despite the actual intended efforts of anybody on the production team, this turned out to be actually quite brilliant, uh, which is a very strange argument to make. But you have the sense of the show having its kind of finger on, on a pulse that I don't think even it understood. So you have this kind of like before the Falklands, you have this really again, I understand people like Earthshock and I don't want to be too mean on it, but you have this very flagrant militaristic hyper masculine space fantasy which almost seems to understand what's happening in the british consciousness at the same time before the falklands war breaks out there's a sense of we are spoiling for a fight and we're going to get it but in his final season you have and again in the final season i think it's much better and much more interesting you have this kind of recurring fascination or this sense that things are not right uh, in the world. Things are broken in the world and are broken in the world in a very particular way. So you have The Awakening, which is, I would argue, one of the undersung masterpieces of the Davison era, in which the Doctor visits contemporary Britain for the first time in quite a while, actually, because the Davison era is largely disconnected from contemporary Britain. But he arrives in Britain in 1984 as the, you know, as the show was airing and discovers that actually Britain has become swept up in this weird colonial fantasy of its own history. And that's leading to death and destruction and chaos, which very much feels like a comment on maybe what was happening in the Thatcher era around the same time, that famous Falklands War headline, the empire will strike back. But even like, you know, at the end of the season, you would have the miners strike happening, uh, which was a huge moment in terms of, of British consciousness, British culture, British history, and a, a defining moment in terms of the 80s in Britain, particularly for the Thatcher government. And obviously that stuff was way in the future. 
But throughout Davison's final season, you have this kind of uncomfortable, almost dreamlike imagery that kind of feels like it's it's leading into it subconsciously. So things like in Frontios, the emphasis on like this apocalyptic story about miners and precious minerals and kind of caverns under the ground occupied, you know, and this sense of fascism on the rise mm. by those people who are going to go in and police and sort of properly regulate these kind of mining th- caverns. And then you have like, uh, you know, Resurrection of the Daleks, which is like Earthshock, except much, much grimmer, much more fatalistic and much more cynical. I don't think like, again, we talked about how one of the interesting things about the fifth doctor is that he feels like a version of the character who can't earn the name doctor, who isn't up to the basic narrative functions of the word doctor. And I think that like Tegan's departure, while perhaps a little abrupt and overwrought, ends with a stinging criticism, which is it's not fun anymore, which is perhaps the most damning critique that you can make of Doctor Who. Like, you know, if you want to condemn and a the bit of a doctor, cell phone on the part of Eric Sayward as well. Right. Absolutely. And again, like I, I do think that Resurrection of the Daleks, I hope it's a little bit self-aware. It's a it's an episode that ends with Davros and the Daleks effectively like jizzing themselves to death, dying in a giant exploding mess of white sticky fluids because they're so ridiculously hyper-masculine. And I think that if you wanted to be charitable to Resurrection of the Daleks, what you would say is perhaps Resurrection of the Daleks is a commentary on Earthshock, where Earthshock is an episode about how the fifth doctor isn't really a man in inverted commas, isn't masculine enough to be an action hero and isn't going to do the things that are necessary to protect his companions and keep the universe safe. What you have in resurrection, of the Daleks. And again, I accept I'm being incredibly charitable here is you have the inverse of that, where you have Davros make the same criticism, but you have the fifth doctor effectively own it. The fifth doctor in resurrection, of the Daleks at the end of his tenure, having, you know, and again, I don't think this was intentional. I think this is accidental. I think I'm being incredibly generous, but let's go with it. Where you have the doctor who was, you know, close to completing his journey in the role as, you know, as closer to the end than Earthshock was at the beginning, Mm. basically throwing his lot in, throwing his hands up in the air and saying, I I can't make this work. I can't do this and be the doctor. I'm going to cast my lots. I'm going to accept that I have to be violent. I have to be brutal. I have to be a murderer. In Resurrection of the Daleks, you have the doctor firing guns. You have him shooting and killing a Khaled mutant, for example. You have him threatening to kill Davros, although he can't do that because Davros is too important to the mythos. But you have him, like, pointing the gun at him. You have him rejecting explicitly um, the kind of ethos of Genesis of the Daleks, the have I the right sort of speech or consideration. You have him saying, no, I was wrong to do that. I was a failure. That was a mistake on my part. You have him basically doing everything that Davros tries to get the Twelfth Doctor to do in, again, The Magician's Apprentice and The Witch's familiar which is to admit that mercy was a mistake you have the doctor at the end of resurrection of the daleks deploying chemical weapons and viral weaponry to effectively commit genocide which i think might be the first time in the classic series the doctor actually goes through with a genocide and actively willingly and like with forethought and planning goes through with a genocide so you have this idea in resurrection of the daleks that like the fifth doctor has looked at earthshock looked at the criticism of earthshock and said Actually, I'm going to respond to them. I'm going to meet them on those terms. I am going to be the kind of action hero that a story like this needs. And then you end Earthshock with, as you described, that self-own. Which, you know, if you're being generous, you might see as a concession. You have, like, Tegan saying, you did that, but it's not fun. Everybody's dead anyway. What did you accomplish? All you did was to make yourself not the Doctor. All you did was make this not Doctor Who. All you did was make Doctor Who not fun. Mm. That's what you accomplished at the end of it. 
And so there's this real sense of kind of meaninglessness to it all. This real sense that like, and again, feels like a belated response to Saward's own writing in, in Earthshock, which is like, well, if the Doctor did become this figure, he would be monstrous and, you know, grotesque and it wouldn't be fun to watch him. Now, of course. Or, or he would, yeah. Or the alternative is he has to die. And that's the, that's the case of Angizani. That's the sort of third part in that, in that trilogy in a way is, yeah. well, you know, the story just breaks him on that third yeah. try. And, I, and it I, it's interesting looking back at each Doctor's regeneration. There's a sense that with most of them, their stories that their successor or their predecessor could have wormed their way out of. Do you know what I mean? And it's it, yeah. it uniquely kills that doctor, and they have yeah. to become a doctor that that can face that issue. Yeah, and again, like I, I, I to be clear now, it, my my generous reading of like Resurrection of the Daleks there kind of falls apart when you was, when you realize that Eric Seward went from like Resurrection of the Daleks straight into the Colin Baker era. Like, the, but, that, if, but that's if, the if, thing with the case of Angizani. It's like okay, the 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 case of Angizani kills the doctor because he gives up the antidote for Perry, but in doing that, he becomes a doctor who maybe wouldn't give up the antidote for Perry. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He ha- he becomes the very thing he despises in that in that in that sense. <laughs> yeah, and again, we're back to the image of the Colin Baker era as a necessary exorcism, like that sort of montage and yeah. raging bull type sequence. Um, I like the idea that yeah, I like the idea of the Sixth Doctor's you know, era is basically the raging bull of Doctor Who. Um, mm. It's the incredibly unpleasant and unsympathetic phase that you go through in order to maybe work through some stuff that was percolating in the background. But yeah, and again, like at, you know, I, I sort of got onto that tangent in terms of Resurrection of the Daleks, in terms of talking about the ba- sorry the Davison era having its finger on the pulse. But yeah, even even things like say the opening imagery of Resurrection of the Daleks, where you have a police officer gunning down civilians in the street, this uh-huh. horrible fascistic unsettling image. And again, obviously, into Caves of Androzani, which is a story about the exploitation of miners and conflict stemming from that, where, again, all of this happened before the miners strike. But you're watching it with the benefit of hindsight. And you're like, there's a sense in which, you know, if you're being generous and I'm wary about being too generous because I have been very, very generous on this podcast, but that there was maybe something in the air that the antenna kind of picked up. And unintentionally, you end up with this weird artifact that feels like it perfectly encapsulates that moment in time. Yeah, definitely. And there's a weird um, through line in, this is a little unrelated, but there's a weird through line in Case of Angelzani with Perry being preyed upon by Sharaz Jack. And there's yeah. a sort of admission there from the program that this is what all the dads are doing to Perry at home anyway. And this version of the show isn't okay with that. But going forward, it will be okay with that. And she's something to ogle from now on. Yeah, that that's it exactly. Like the really horrible treatment of Perry, which is kind of again literally it's like mi- it's like... miserable, isn't it? The doc the doctor becomes the doctor becomes someone who wouldn't give the antidote to Perry, and Perry becomes someone that the audience has to be okay with being this sex object. Yeah, being ogled and kind of reduced to an object and kind of traded off and and sold and having no real consent or agency. And even in the being... the Davison to Baker regeneration sequence, the camera is is going down Perry's top. Cleavage, yeah. And I think Davidson, <laughs> him, Davidson himself, perhaps more good good naturedly than we are, you know, acknowledged that his regeneration was somewhat overshadowed by mm. in, by the framing of it. And again, like it's worth noting that even back in her introduction in kind of 
you know, Planet of Fire. You have her in the bikini as well, which is very much kind of a yeah. leering perspective. Although what you might argue if you were being incredibly generous, and sure, why not? We're being very generous in this podcast. Let's continue to be. That you at least have Mark Strickson in like that really tight Speedo as well. Yeah. So at least you can kind of say, well, you know, maybe the show is acknowledging that, you know, if there's, you know, that really awful, disgusting something for daddy kind of comment, at least there's oh, an acknowledgement that somebody else might be, you know, ogling that, that there might be a female gaze as well as a male gaze, perhaps, you know? But I think or at really, least a non-heterosexual Yeah, gaze. it's still a male gaze with Strixon. Yeah, it's just fair. a gay male gaze, really. I don't that's think fair. any women are looking to ogle men in quite the same way that, that maybe men are looking to ogle women. Um, although although that's I will a massive say, conversation. I, but yeah, in, in terms of like, yeah, the, the Colin Baker stuff, it's really odd because it feels like if it feels like the Davison era is kind of working that stuff out and it's mm. kind of like working through that stuff. And then you have, as you pointed out, the reaction against it, where all of a sudden all the stuff that the Baker, sorry, that the Davison era seems to be working through is back with a vengeance yeah. uh, in immediately following. It's it like, feels like a failure. Okay. We've, yeah. we've just, we've just, you know, it's a, it's a, if you can't beat them, join them thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, and again, like it's it's weird because you would argue, and I, I would argue that it's ultimately, you know, the Davis and Era has been somewhat vindicated by the fact that you have, you know, you have David Tennant, who at the time was the most popular doctor and who still competes with Baker as the most popular mm. doctor, looking at Davison of all people and saying, you were my doctor, which is as good a validation as you're ever going to get. The fact that Davison was technically the first classic doctor to kind of like pop up in a guest role in the show, that he was the first one who was chosen to be brought back. But even the influence of, of kind of the, the Davison era in terms of how the show is written, things like taking the accidental subtext of, you know, is the doctor somebody we trust to keep a companion safe and actually making it a conscious arc on the show, making it a kind of a recurring motif, making it part of who he is. Or, you know, it's a younger doctor now and kind of taking that as the standard and accepting that as something that can work. Or even the, the, the more basic, you know, the doctor... You know, is less of a pantomime character, you know, and again, I say that loving all of the classic doctors, but he's less of a pantomime character and more of like an actual character with an internal psychology played by actors who are very good at kind of doing these small mannered performances mm. that suggest kind of an internal life that's that's a bit richer, perhaps, than, you know the third or fourth doctors might have suggested in their on-screen appearances. And I say again, loving Pertwee and Baker in the role. And again, so it kind of, it, it's interesting that you have the immediate swing back and reaction against the Davison era in the Colin Baker era, but like in the longer term, it feels like Davison has kind of been validated and has kind of won out, which is like heartening and reassuring. Quietly. I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Quietly. In a very, in a very Davison sort of way, I suppose. Yeah. Incredible. Well, thank you so much for talking to me, Darren. I really appreciate you. Yeah, you joining me today. Uh, my absolute pleasure, Molly. Thank you for having me. And where can people find your your writing and your podcasts and your columns, etc.? Uh, yeah, so if, basically, if you just Google me, you'll probably come back with something. But uh, very, very quickly, uh, he says, before launching into what will undoubtedly be another five-minute monologue. Uh, but no, you can find me online at Twitter at Darren underscore Mooney, where I tweet about whatever's running through my head. Um, occasionally do live watches of things. So if I'm tweeting, I might kind of tweet whatever I'm thinking at the image on screen. I'm very reactive in that sort of way. Uh, you can find me at the movie blog, which I still write on a, on a regular basis. Mm. I host a podcast called 250 with my good friend Andrew Quinn, where we talk about the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. Um, and we go through them one at a time and kind of with guests and discuss kind of what they mean whether they really are the best movies ever that sort of stuff as well um and i write uh, weekly columns at the escapist uh, magazine you can just find that by googling my name and escapist magazine um and i've also written uh, two books uh, i haven't written anything about doctor who yet 
Uh, but you can find books that I've written about uh, The X-Files and Christopher Nolan available from all good sellers as well. Uh, if you want to check them out, um, I'm actually reasonably proud of them. Um, I went back, I had to reread uh, one of them for something else I was working on. And it's, it's always great when you read your old work and you're only slightly embarrassed by it. Yeah, because you know? the... Yeah, the uh, default is total embarrassment, isn't it? Total cringe. It's like, no, yeah. no, who is this guy? What, what, is this, what is this hack doing? Who gave him a book? Um, you know, I was kind of flattered that I was just like, this guy's a bit of an idiot. was about the, the kind of high threshold that I mm. reached there. Um, but yeah, so if, if you want to check those out, uh, please feel free. They're available online. You can also rent them from your local library. Um, and yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you for having me on, Molly. A real pleasure. No problem. And you can find um, the podcast, as usual, on Twitter at Galaxy Yo-Yo Pod. You can find me on Twitter at Molly underscore Martian. And um, you can email me um, at GalaxyYoYoPod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, queries, suggestions, um, or hate mail. Uh, So, yeah, do that. Um, Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.